All right, let's turn again to Mark's Gospel, chapter 14 this morning. In John's Gospel, chapter 1, he states that Jesus was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. And that last sentence means that Jesus came to his own things and his own people did not receive him. His own people, of course, alludes to the nation of Israel who should have received him as their Messiah, but instead repudiated him. And the narrative before us is a clear indication of that truth. Mark here interweaves two events into this true story of Jesus before that Jewish high tribunal known as the Sanhedrin and his denial by Peter. The Sanhedrin repudiated Jesus by refusing to accept his authority, by rejecting his teaching and claims of Messiahship, and charging him with a sin of blasphemy. Jesus has already been repudiated in a sense by his disciples because they fled the scene of his arrest and abandoned him to the wiles of his betrayer. And yet we find that there is one who follows from a distance and enters the courtyard where Jesus will face his accusers. While Jesus is being accused of things he did not do, this disciple is accused of being associated with him, and he too will repudiate his master refusing to acknowledge him, even swearing that he doesn't know who he is. Now, Jesus and Peter stand in contrast to each other in the narrative. Both men were under pressure, a temptation to protect self in the face of persecution. Jesus, in no uncertain terms, confesses openly for the first time who he is, the Christ the son of the blessed. This is the Christological climax of Mark's gospel. Jesus applies the information his accusers need to arrest him and deliver him to the Roman authorities. On the other hand, Peter denies Jesus three times, as the Lord has predicted. He's fearful, he's self-protective, instead of loyal and courageous, as he had claimed. One commentator noted this passage warns believers today. He said, if denial of Jesus Christ was possible for an apostle, and one of the leaders of the apostles at that, then they must be constantly on guard, lest they too deny Jesus. This story also provides assurance that if anyone did fail Jesus under the duress of persecution, there was always a way open for repentance, forgiveness, and restoration. And that's an encouragement to us today as well. So let's look to the Lord as we look to this passage this morning. Our Heavenly Father, once again, we're thankful that Jesus came. We're thankful, Lord, that we have a record of that coming and of what he went through as he endured the cross of Calvary for our sakes. And as we come to this passage this morning, Lord, we realize that we are weak and that we often fail, even as Peter did. 
So we can't really blame him deeply. But Lord, we pray you'd help us to have the resolve and the strength that Jesus did when he faced his trials. That when we are persecuted or we are accused of something false, we might have the same composure that he did. We might trust you to help us in those places to stand where it might be very easy to fall. So Lord, bless us as we look to your word today. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. The first thing that we want to look at today is this uh, trial. We could call it a trial. We're not really sure if that's what it was or not. But the Sanhedrin repudiates and condemns Jesus in these verses. And what we have noted there are two gatherings. Now, there was a gathering, first of all, at the home of the high priest, whom Mark does not even name. And the Jewish arraignment of Jesus takes place in three scenes, according to the gospel accounts. He first stands before Annas, who was the father-in-law of this high priest and a previous high priest himself, who other gospels name as Caiaphas. And he's the current high priest. Mark does not include that part in his narrative. Then Jesus appears here at the home of Caiaphas, and finally, he is formally charged before the whole Jewish tribunal in Mark chapter 15, verse 1. They bind him and they take him away to the Roman authorities. Now, at the palace of the high priest, these enemies of Jesus have convened. And these are the religious and civil rulers that we have already described a number of times. They're members of this Jewish high council, kind of like uh, our Supreme Court today. They were called the Sanhedrin, and they were composed of 70 leaders and the high priests, so a total of 71 men. They did have authority in, in Israel to judge matters associated with the Old Testament law, and to carry out uh, verdicts. And at this time, though, we don't believe they had the authority to execute someone with a capital offense. So their purpose in gathering is to find something whereby they might charge Jesus and send him to the Roman authorities. Now, while this is going on, there's another gathering as well. Uh, we saw this in verse 54, that Peter did follow Jesus from a distance, and he gets into the courtyard of the high priest, and there he sits before a fire with the servants who had taken them to the high priest, and he wants to find out what's going on. He's incognito, he's not announcing himself, but he may be thinking that he's living up to the, the proclaimed loyalty to Jesus that he uh, previously had said. So his purpose is, what's going to happen? And so the stage is set for Peter to deny the Lord Jesus. Now, as we look at the gathering itself, we see here a failed attempt to find a charge against Jesus that will stick in verses 55 to 59. Now, many people have attempted to point out illegalities in this hearing. But was it an official trial at this point or not? In the 
Sanhedrin Mishnah, one of the writings of the Jews, uh, the way such a trial was supposed to be conducted was written out. But this was not done until 200 AD, nearly two centuries later. So we're not really sure if those regulations that some think were violated were really in place in the first century. But of course, as we look at this, we realize uh, there wasn't a whole lot of fairness going on. It seems that this meeting was more like a fishing expedition to find charges against Jesus that they could present to a Roman court of law and they would they could uphold it. Now, according to Jewish law, you go to the Old Testament, in order for you to establish uh, trying someone, there had to be at least two witnesses and better if there were three. And it seems they were at least trying to follow this principle because they couldn't get two witnesses to agree with each other to anything that was being brought up during the trial. So in verse 55, the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death. So the verdict really was already reached. They wanted to put him to death, but you can't do that unless you have some charges. So that's why they're coming together, to bring all these supposed witnesses to bring charges, get two or three to, uh, uh, to act together, and then they can take that to the Roman authorities. Now, since this was early in the morning, verse 57 says, some rose up in that meeting, they bore false witness against him. So everything that they're claiming about Jesus is not based on truth. But even so, if you can get a couple people to agree, that'll be enough. Uh, now, it was very early in the morning, so it seems to me that these witnesses must have already been obtained and kind of on call to present their evidence. And this may have been going on ever since Judas came and said he would betray Jesus into their hands. So from that point, they might have been trying to gather evidence against the Lord Jesus. Now, the problem again is they did not have any religious or civil crime with which to charge him. And these people bring false witness. They can't corroborate it. Two people can't agree. And if those people can't agree, they try to take to the authorities. They're going to look very foolish. And of course, they don't want to do that. One commentator wrote this, What took place as soon as Jesus was brought to the high priest's house was a hasty attempt to gather charges so that a case could be made before Rome and Pilate. And so really this wasn't a whole lot more than a kangaroo court that an official, uh, than an official trial. Now finally, as things are going on and people are popping up with these thoughts and ideas, we have one charge that is mentioned in verse 57. Then some rose up and bore false witness, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. Now, a charge concerning the temple was very, very serious in the minds of these people because that's where God was supposed to be dwelling. 
And when you say something like you're going to destroy a temple, whether it's the Jewish temple or a Roman temple or some other temple, that was uh, an infringement against the God, so to speak. And so it was very, very serious. And this is something that, that was very compelling to them. Now, Mark nor any other gospel records these exact words of Jesus. So this is very likely a garbled message as well. And Mark says that even uh, this charge could not be corroborated. They couldn't agree on it. However, Matthew states that eventually two of them did. Now, we think about the statements of Jesus in his teachings He did tell his disciples back in chapter 13 during Passover week that the temple would be destroyed in the future. But he did not say anything about rebuilding it or that he would be the one destroying it. John records, however, that Jesus said, this would have been back earlier in his ministry, much earlier, uh, Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. But what was he talking about? Was he speaking about the literal, physical temple? Or was he speaking about his death and resurrection? Well, that's really what he was saying. He was talking about his temple, his body. It was going to be destroyed, but after three days, he's going to raise it up. Now, we as readers know today, he was talking not about the physical temple, but himself and what he would do. Now, Mark takes... That false charge, however, and the way that he writes it, he actually weaves into it some clues that indicate Jesus was not referring to a literal temple. First of all, he uses the word that means sanctuary for temple, not the normal word that is used to describe the temple complex. Secondly, the terminology being made with hands and then being made without hands, well, something that's made with hands alludes to a material structure constructed by men. But something made without hands, well, that alludes to workmanship that's not human. It's supernatural. Thirdly, Jesus they state that Jesus said, um, I will build another made without hands. Now the word another there does not mean another of the same kind, but another of a different kind. So again, he's not talking about the literal physical temple. And finally, when you think about that charge, you would probably think the guy was nuts to say he could rebuild God's temple in three days when Herod had been building it for 40 years and it still wasn't quite done. So putting all that together, Mark is showing his readers in Rome and us today that what Jesus said or what these people said that he said was actually conveying a spiritual truth uh, uh, to us. That after Christ's resurrection, God's presence will no longer be found in a physical building such as the temple, but in the new sanctuary of his own people as individuals and as a corporate body. So he's teaching something there, even out of that false charge. Now, in the literal interpretation that his accusers would take, though, 
Any talk of destroying a temple was serious business and was liable for the greatest punishment. And they're going to uh, kind of weave this in a little bit later. Now, we come to verse 60, and we find something very interesting here as well. They can pro- provide no corroborating evidence to prove that Jesus has committed any crime at all. So what does Jesus do? He provides evidence for them to charge him. And that shows us Jesus is the one who's really in control. All right. So finally, in verse 60, the high priest stands up in the midst and asks Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? So he's kind of frustrated here, and he takes control of the situation. Things aren't going the way that he thought they would. Realizing their attempts to find these viable witnesses to charge Jesus is failing, he tries to get Jesus to incriminate himself. So he's chiding him for not defending himself, not saying anything, wondering why there's no response to all these charges. But Jesus is showing his wisdom by keeping his mouth shut. Accusations have been flying everywhere, but again, no evidence to back them up. And the so-called witnesses are confused. They can't agree. What is there to defend or to say uh, about these things? So his silence is a testimony to their lack of evidence and their evil intent. And we're also reminded back in Isaiah 53 that he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So Jesus is knowing uh, everything that's going on here, and he knows that there's no real charge that can be brought against him. So the high priest, when he hears nothing, uh, he presents Jesus a question that he must answer. Verse 61. He kept silent, answered nothing. The high priest asked him, saying to, asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Now, we kind of might think that's a, a weird way of saying God's name because it's not actually mentioned. But the Jews so feared that name that they would put other names to replace it and they would use those to allude to God. So they're speaking of of God without actually saying his name. So son of the blessed really means son of God. That's what he's saying here. Uh, But not in the same way that we might understand that today. He's asking Jesus, are you the Messiah? Are you the anointed one? Are you the son of the blessed, the son of God? Now, the Jewish view of Messiah was not that of a deified man, but rather a descendant of the line of King David who would come to reestablish Israel's former greatness and glory. The priest would be associating the title Son of the the Blessed with that idea rather than Jesus being the Son of God in the flesh, as we would believe and is taught elsewhere in Scripture. Now, in response to this, Jesus says, yeah, I am. 
And up to this point, Jesus has been very reserved in revealing his true identity. His favorite self-designation has been son of man, not son of God. He wants people to come to that conclusion based on their hearing his teaching, observing his works, and by faith, believing in him. But even when people come to that point in their life, in Mark's gospel, he impresses upon him, uh, upon them to still stay silent. Don't go blasting it all over the place because people misunderstood what Messiah was all about and he didn't want them to be confused. However, now the time for full disclosure has come. Uh, He's not going to avoid answering this direct question with a direct answer. So he identifies himself and then he makes an astounding statement that actually turns the tables on his accusers. If you look at verse 62, Jesus says, I am. Now that itself could be taken as a divine designation, that I am from the Old Testament. It may not have had that full idea in the minds of these people, but it could have. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So here again, we have an allusion to the Old Testament, Psalm 110.1, and also uh, Daniel chapter 7, 13 to 14, where the Son of Man comes and he takes the rule of the world in judgment. So he's identifying himself with these Old Testament Uh, this Old Testament language of judgment, a day is coming when these false accusers will stand before the Lord and be judged by him for their sins. And with these words, Jesus is actually repudiating the Sanhedrin. Now, the Lord Jesus knew his destiny lay in glory at the Father's right hand. But in the mind of the high priest and those who were with him, what's he saying? How dare this man say he can sit in the same place that God does in heaven? And to them, that was a a blasphemy. And so that's where they are going with this. Somebody who's a human being... Uh, cannot say that they can stand at the right hand of God and be the judge of the whole world. Now, hearing this, what does the high priest do? He stands up and he tears his garments. Now, I found that back in Leviticus, the high priest was not supposed to do this. High priest wasn't supposed to tear his clothes. But this is what happens. He does it in anger, uh, in uh, what he will probably think is righteous anger, because this man who's been going around causing all this trouble for us has now put himself in a place where he's kind of equal with God, where he can stand by God. And he says, what further need do we have of witnesses? He's condemned himself. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you all think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. So in their minds, 
Jesus was a blasphemer, saying things about men that can't be true in relationship to God. Not that he said something bad about God, but he put himself in such an elevated position that no human being had the right to do. Uh, So he predicts this heavenly role of judgment. He uses that name, I am, which could be construed as as divine. And all this in their mind is speaking in terms that can only apply to God. So Jesus has incriminated himself. There's no other need of witnesses. And the verdict is in. And those who are present condemned him as worthy of death. And at this point, their repudiation becomes very uh, personal and violent. Look at what happens. Verse 65. Then some began to spit on him. Now back in verse 64, they all condemned him. Now some began to spit on him. So that indicates some of the men in this highest council lowered themselves to disrespect Jesus in a very obvious and powerful way. So they spat on him. Now I don't know if anybody's ever done that to you, but you can't think of a much worse way to disrespect somebody than spitting in their face. And that's what happens here and elsewhere. And then they begin to blindfold him and to beat him. Now, this isn't the guards. This is members of the Jewish highest council. It'd be like a member of the Supreme Court going down to somebody who was condemned to start beating on them. We, we wouldn't even imagine that. And they'd be in all kinds of trouble if they did that. But this is what they did to the Lord Jesus. And they're mocking him as they do that, wanting him to prophesy who it was that hit you. And that might be going back to Isaiah chapter 11 that tells us that when the Messiah comes, he will not judge by sight or hearing. So some of the rabbis assumed, well, that means he could he could judge by smelling. And so what they're doing is they're using that rabbinical interpretation to say that, okay, we're going to blindfold you and we're going to strike you. And now you should be able to, to smell the person who is hitting you and identify that person. So it's all a big mockery here of who Jesus is. Now, furthermore, the officers... Okay, these are the people that, that brought him uh, uh, to Caiaphas' house in the first place, who had met him in the garden. And now these men, these guards, these palace guards, they begin to strike him with the palms of their hands, slap his face. Again, that is something that is done in utter contempt of another person when you slap them in the face. So the Lord Jesus, the true Messiah, takes all this abuse in a manly, godly way. He doesn't uh, 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 repudiate them or speak uh, uh, against them. He's silent through all of this. He's the true Messiah of Israel. He's being repudiated and abused by the highest officials of the land, and then he's carted off to the Roman governor Pilate. Now, while all this is happening on the inside, something else is happening on the outside. So let's take a look here 
of what's been going on out there in the courtyard. And we see now that somebody else repudiates Jesus. Someone we wouldn't expect to. But to repudiate means to refuse to acknowledge someone or to have nothing to do with them or to disown them. And that's what happens here with Peter. So let's take a look here again. The number three is often symbolic in God's word. It's kind of a, uh, the idea of completion or fullness. And you remember that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus submitted to the will of God three times in prayer, saying, not my will, but thine be done. Conversely, when Peter had an opportunity to identify with Jesus and support him, he denies him three times. So let's take a look at this threefold repudiation. We are reminded that Peter was at the fire in the courtyard, uh, which was lower than the first level of the house. And in the light of that fire, he is recognized by one of the servant girls in the high priest's household. Verse 66, one of these servant girls come to him. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him. That means she gazed at him and she recognized him. And she comes up and says, you also were with Jesus of Nazareth. So here's some pressure. The enemies of Jesus are all around the place. There are no other disciples there. Peter's by himself. So he's under pressure now. And it's interesting when she uses this expression, uh, the term Nazarene is in the emphatic position. So she's saying, you also were with that Nazarene Jesus. And being in the house of the high priest, she no doubt overheard a lot of negative conversations going on about this Jesus person, and her, her expression suggests contempt. This Nazarene, and of course, somebody from Galilee, especially Nazareth, was looked down on, and then this is applied to Jesus. So she recognizes Jesus, probably uh, seeing him. Now, she's near the temple, probably saw uh, Jesus with his disciples and recognized Peter as one of them. Now, now Peter, he evades this. He denies in verse 68. I neither know nor understand what you're saying. Okay, so that's the first repudiation there. I don't know what you're talking about. So this is an indirect denial of his association with Jesus, trying to get around it without actually saying, um, I deny him. He then withdraws and goes out onto the porch or the archway that would lead out uh, eventually to the street. And here we have that rooster crowing. Okay, so that reminds us of what Jesus said as the reader But evidently, it had no impact on Peter. Doesn't help him recall anything. Well, uh, he's out there in the uh, portico. He's in the archway, probably hiding in the shadows. But the servant girl doesn't give up. Down in verse 69, she saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, those who gathered around the fire, those who might be in the courtyard, This is one of them. This is one of those guys. So what's that presenting? There's us and there's them. We're the good guys. They're the bad guys. That's what's coming out of here. Uh, 
He's one of them. So again, identifying him with Jesus and the band of disciples. And uh, Peter, again, denies the Lord. He denied it again, verse 70. Now, nothing is explained here except for the fact he denied Jesus once again. Uh, He hears her, and he won't admit that he knows the Lord at all. Now, finally, a little bit later, verse 70, those who stood by said to Peter. Now, they've picked up on this. Surely you are one of them, for you're a Galilean and your speech shows it. So just like uh, parts of America uh, have these regional accents, it was true then. If you were from Galilee, you would have an accent that a Judean would recognize. And as they hear Peter talking, they pick up on that, and they think that's enough to identify him with the Lord Jesus. So he has another chance to say, yes, I do know him. But he doesn't respond that way. He responds very powerfully in verse 71. He began to curse and to swear. I do not know this man of whom you speak. Now, to swear doesn't mean to take God's name in vain. It doesn't mean to use bad language. What it means is to say uh, or to put yourself under an oath to support that what you're saying is true. So it's similar to our saying, I swear on the Bible or I swear on my mother's grave. And and the idea is, may God do to me whatever if I'm not really telling the truth. So he's calling an oath down to support what he's saying is true, which you, according to the Old Testament, you could swear that way, but you better not be lying when you did it. Now, the other verb here, the verb to curse, some interpret that uh, pretty much the same way as calling an oath down upon yourself. However, it's probably even worse than that. Sometimes it means to bring a curse down on yourself if you're not telling the truth. But the word oneself in the Greek is not there. And some have suggested that that means that the curse must have been on Jesus to enforce that he did not owe him. Now that is really serious, isn't it? So the chief of disciples became a chief repudiator of Jesus in that hour. He thought he could stand under pressure, but he found out he could not. Take heed. Think you stand, but you might end up falling. Well, fortunately, we have verse 72. When all this happened, the rooster crowed as Jesus predicted the second time. And that wakes Peter up and helps him to realize what he had just done. He called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he thinks about it, and amazingly, that's just exactly what's happened. It all comes flowing into his head, and what does he do? He breaks down and weeps. Well, 
That word doesn't mean he, he just began to cry. That word indicates deep remorse and sorrow and mourning. So it tells us that Peter chided himself over what he had done, which is really an indication of repentance, that he was sorry that he did it. It was a godly sorrow. And with this, Peter fades from the narrative in Mark. We don't see him or hear him anymore until we come to chapter 16. And we find there that the women who came to the tomb after Christ's resurrection are instructed by an angel. Go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you into Galilee. So that indicates to me that Jesus forgave him. An indication that he's specifically picked out here by name and uh, he's going to be back in that leadership position. So what are some things that we draw from this passage of Scripture? Well, first of all, we may at times feel incensed that Jesus was unjustly and brutally treated. It seems as though he was a helpless victim who did not deserve what happened to him. But Jesus was composed through all of this after praying in the garden uh, because he knew that all this was under God's control. All this was God's plan. And if we remember the, the story as it unfolds, Jesus is the one who sends Judas out to do his sinful deed. And then at this meeting, Jesus is the one who provided the charge that the Sanhedrin needed to condemn him. They couldn't come up with one. So the Lord is able to control even the evil deeds of men to perform the greatest good. That's really the only way an innocent man like Jesus could go to the cross. And then we we have this idea again of human choices being involved. You have to choose who you're going to believe. Going to be like the uh, religious rulers who rejected the Lord Jesus? Or are we going to be like the disciples, even though they failed to support the Lord Jesus, they come back and follow him not too long later? So all the evidence that we need to know who Jesus is, that he's our Savior, is given in the Gospels, we simply have to believe that. We have to trust that. Then, if the disciples, especially Peter, uh, were capable of denying Jesus, then we certainly are able to do so as well. When we are under pressure of persecution, we can take the easy way out. We can just kind of lay low. We can just say nothing. Uh, we cannot identify as a Christian. We can fail to witness others when we have an opportunity out of fear of their response or whatever. So there are a lot of ways today we can deny Christ if we're not watching and praying and staying in close relationship to him and trusting him to give us the strength to stand in those times where we're under pressure. And finally, we're reminded that in those times we do fail, the door's always open to repent and return to Christ, to maintain our fellowship with him. The only disciple who fully repudiated the Lord Jesus was Judas. 
Instead of repenting, he went out and committed suicide. Peter and the others sorrowed over their failure. They regathered in the upper room, and they were there when Jesus appeared to them the first time and regained their faith and their fellowship to the Lord. So a lot of things come out of this passage of Scripture as we think about what Peter was like and then what the Lord Jesus was like. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful today that Jesus stood his ground. He testified of who he was. And Lord, he was involved in the orchestration of his own death when uh, his accusers could not come up with a proper charge. So we know, Lord, that he was really in charge, that he was submitting to your will. And Lord, that even though great evil was done, we know that in the end, the greatest good was done as our salvation was provided. Help us, Lord, today to stand as your witnesses. Help us, Lord, in times where we're pressured uh, to evade questions about our faith in you, uh, to deny that we know you, that we would have the strength to stand up and say, yes, I'm a Christian, I do follow the Lord. And we just pray, Lord, that in this day when uh, things are a little bit crazy, we would continue to stand up for what's true and right through the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless us with the thought we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.